such a privilege to be here with you today. Um, thank you for uh, being here and being here with an open heart to the Lord. I just have a very brief announcement before we dive into the, the scripture this morning. Um, as you know, we've been announcing that we're, we're starting a, a, a course, if you want to call it that, a joint practice, maybe be a better term, of living without anger, uh, learning to, to practice that together. And that's going to start here, I believe it will be the second Sunday of March when we start. We'll verify that for sure. But I had a sign-up sheet that was at the back. I announced it last week uh, again. But then I was looking for it, and I can't find that sign-up sheet anywhere uh, which made me pretty angry um, this week. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But uh, I, I would like to find that. So if you're here and you know where that sheet went, would you please uh, bring it out so we can uh, continue to add names to it? I, I have, if you've told me you want to be on the list, I've got you in my head. Um, but uh, I would like to keep putting names on that list. And feel free to sign up for that. Like I said, it will be starting, I believe, on the second Sunday of March at our normal class time. All right, let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you that you choose to meet with us and how blessed we are to have that as our reality. And we would ask that you would descend and meet with us this morning, even now through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Josh mentioned uh, at the opening, that Josh, uh, there has been a revival, if you want to call it that, taking place in Wilmore, Kentucky, which was my hometown for about three years. Uh, Olivia and I lived there. It's one of my favorite places on earth. And uh, I love that school there. I love the people there. And the small little town where you might not be expecting much to happen. Uh, and yet God has shown up there in a powerful way this week. If you've been watching the news, uh, it's been national news. Uh, and showing up on, on, uh, in major uh, publications and television. And so... Uh, I've been really thankful to, to read about that. In fact, I almost I was this close to going up there this week, and I backed out of it. Uh, but I was just going to just get there to get close to it. Um, but uh, I, I think it's interesting as we are in the book of Exodus uh, uh, to draw attention to that right now because this is what we've been discovering about God. It's God's a God who comes near. And we're going to see that again this morning as, as we come to the close of Exodus. Actually, next week, Brother Charles is going to be doing a, a, a special talk for us that I think will tie in with the book of Exodus, but uh, uh, we will uh, say more about that next week. But uh, this is really our, our wrap-up, at least for my part of Exodus. This is the wrap-up of Exodus, because uh, we're going to skip over those chapters, those uh, multiple chapters here that repeat the other chapters we already skipped <laughs> on the tabernacle, you know, the, all the details of, of instructions are given, then you get the golden calf coming, and then you get the, they well, actually did what they were told to do, and you get a bunch of chapters telling them what to do, so we're not going to read through all of that. So this is really where we're going to come to the conclusion of Exodus this week, and we remember that we serve a God who comes near to us. I want to remind you of where we've come on this journey as we're getting started, this journey of knowing God. Remember that the Lord shows up to Moses. Moses doesn't know the Lord, at least as far as we can tell. He doesn't know the Lord. I don't think the people in Egypt have a great knowledge of the Lord. And he shows up in this burning bush and he's wondering, well, who are you? Basically, what's your name? And that starts a journey of revelation. Because God in the burning bush who confronts Moses in the wilderness says, I will tell you my name, however you pronounce it, Yahweh, the Lord, I am I'll tell you my name, and what he's saying is, I want to be known. 
I want to reveal myself to you. And then as we journey through Exodus, we learn a lot about God. We learn that he's a God of uncontested power. And he deals with the gods, the so-called gods of Egypt. And if you remember, I think this is the illustration I used when we were talking about it. It's from the Avengers where the, the Hulk gets a hold of Loki. And at the end, Loki says, I'm a god. You know, and Hulk just pounds him back and forth. And he says, puny god. Right? That's basically what the Lord God does with Pharaoh and with the Egyptian pantheon of gods. He says, puny gods. And he just, one after another, knocks him down and says, you have no authority here. Even in what you think is your own land, I'm in charge. And I will come and get my people and take them whenever I get good and ready to do that. He is a God who is uncontested in his power. But then he takes him out into the wilderness. And he doesn't just say, okay, well, I'm a liberator. Now I'm going to go on my way, you know. No, he says, I am a God who heals you. I'm a God who will provide for you. And he sends them food to eat. I'm a God who will protect you. And he goes out with them and wins the battle for them. And they're learning that this God, this Lord, Yahweh, is a God who does more than just sets them free. And then they find out it's more than that, though. It's not just that he'll show up occasionally to help them out when they need it. It's that he wants to arrange a covenant where he unites himself to them like, like he's getting married to them. Signing on. Forming an alliance saying, I will be loyal to you, you be loyal to me. And along with that, then he gives them a law. We, we talked about how the law is not a bad thing, the law is a good thing. He was teaching them how to live, and they needed to know how to live. We go further, and we find out he's a God who wants to be near. They come out there, they have an arranged meeting at the mountain, and the whole mountain is in trouble because God's there. And it's scary, and lots of stuff's going on. And, they, and Moses is the one who goes to the top of the mountain. But guess how the story unfolds? God doesn't just want to stay up at the top of the mountain and have one person go up there. God wants to come down and be in their camp with them. That's what they find out about him. And he will be worshipped there. He'll be close to them. He gives them the tabernacle as a place where they can meet with his presence. And then we find out one more thing that's super important. This is where we were last week with Josh's message to us. When they totally blow it, when they do the thing they're not supposed to do, what does God do then? He's a God of compassion and forgiveness. And he says, I'll still go with you. I will forgive your sins. I'll show mercy to you. And you have this famous passage, this beautiful passage that Josh was proclaiming to us last week. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed his name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast covenant love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children, the third and fourth generation. I want to say something about that last part there because some people when they read that, it sort of invalidates all the earlier parts. They read that part and say, well, uh, but he's going to punish? And how does that work out? Well, let me just say briefly that everybody knows that justice is a good thing. And if we really think about it, we want a God who is just. And you imagine somebody who's done terrible things. Somebody who's abused little children. Let's take an extreme example. Imagine he gets caught and he's abused many, many children and he, he's brought before the judge and the judge just looks at him and says, well, 
I love you, buddy. Let's forget about it. See, that would be evil. That would be a very, very bad person who would do that. We all know that justice actually is a good thing. All right? And we want a God who is just. Now, exactly how that gets teased out and worked out, that may create some questions for us. What is the exact way to do that? And then we'd have to think about when, when Scripture, and we can look at the, many examples, I'm sure, throughout the Bible, where, where we are struggling to make sense of how a certain sentence, a certain punishment or whatever is just. And we'd have to take into consideration the culture of that time and how God might be accommodating himself to that culture. We have to take, an example, uh, take into account the uh, figurative language that's sometimes used, metaphorical language that, that's used that may not be meant for us to take exactly at face value. We'd have to take into account the background of what's actually going on in these accounts and the, the real wrongs that have been done, because sometimes we may not be seeing those uh, on the surface. And, and all of that can help us to understand the, the justice of God and why God would do this. We, we, we even might want to ask questions about, okay, well, how is it like to children and children's children, grandchildren? Why does, well, how is it just to carry things out? like that uh, and, and to, to proceed to exercise the kind of punishment down through the generations like that that seems to not be right and it actually seems to conflict with other scriptures where God says the, the one who sins is the one who will face judgment not the father or the child or the child for the father or the father for the child so what, how, do, how do we make sense of that being just and th those may be some hard questions and I think partially the answer might come if we understand how people thought collectively of themselves as a people group and how they thought of their rewards and punishments maybe extending on through time that would be my, my guess and, and in fact I think the better translation or the better understanding here of this passage you see that verse 7 where it says keeping steadfast love for thousands I think that means thousands of generations so if you get down to the bottom there, I'll carry out punishment. When somebody's guilty, there'll be punishment to the third and fourth generation. The contrast is with when, when there is reward for faithfulness, it's for thousands of generations. <laughs> and so the accent falls. This is what we want to get to. The accent falls on an overwhelming mercy and love. That's what this passage reveals to us here. You might even argue this is the climax of the book of Exodus. When you come to the, to the end of Exodus and God reveals himself finally after all these things that have happened, they sin blatantly, grossly against him, and he comes to reveal something else about himself. Here's what you need to know about, about me. I am a God who will show mercy for generations beyond what you can even grasp. It will go on and on and on and on. That's where the mercy and the, just, judgment, uh, the, mercy and the goodness of God, that's where the accent of the text is. And let's just remember that in Scripture... The ultimate expression of who God is comes to us in Jesus. So any questions you might have here, any, anything in the Old Testament that sometimes makes you pause and say, well, how does that work with, with goodness and kindness? Well, if you don't understand it, just fast forward to Jesus, okay? Because that is the clearest picture of God we ever get. And we see there a mercy and a love that is beyond our comprehension. There are a lot of issues to talk through. I ran, I ran through some things very quickly there because I don't want to take up all our time there. Uh, but uh, there is uh, definitely... Uh, things to consider further, but we can also rest in the fact that Revelation accents the goodness and kindness and mercy and love of God. That's where we come to here at this climactic moment in the book of Exodus. Right? So now as we come to conclude our, our study of Exodus, I want to make, uh, I want to draw three observations out today for you that are from the text we're in here and then uh, that move us on uh, or, or might take us back really to the, to the whole picture, the big picture of the book of Exodus as we've studied it, okay? 
The first one is this. When we read the book of Exodus, when we read this text right now, uh, as we take away things from the book of Exodus, we should recognize the mighty hand of God. We should recognize that our God is mighty. This is what we saw throughout the text. If you look here, so I'm going to pick up where Josh finished up last week, right after this, this text here. Get to, oh, let, let's open up the, uh, uh, well, this isn't working for me. Um, you know, I was trying to go back. You can, just, you can just take that away if you don't mind. Uh, um, verse 10, chapter 34 and verse 10. And God said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. And right here in this immediate context, we might just look at the awesome thing and say, Well, it's awesome what he's doing. He's going to drive out. By miraculous power, he's going to drive out the inhabitants of these other nations. He's going to give Israel the land that he's promised to give to them. And that is an awesome thing in itself. He's going to cause the walls of Jericho to fall down. Right? He's going to give them a, a power uh, to do things that they otherwise could not do. And that is a, a certainly a part of what, what is awesome that the Lord is doing for them. But then when we, when we pause at a text like this, we, we need to stop and realize that, that we just have a God who's always doing awesome things. We are people who are on the lookout for awesome. Because our God does awesome things. And we might just pause and realize that, that what might, we might say is even more awesome than him going out and, and causing the walls of Jericho to fall down and causing the, the waters to split so they can walk across them. What's more awesome than that is that God forgives this people and loves this people and makes a covenant with this, this, this people. That in itself is an awesome thing. Who has ever heard of a God like that? Who says, I just want to bind myself to you and I just want to keep loving you and I want to do it even if, if you don't love me back. I want to forgive you and take you back in. That, that's who I want to be for you. That is the awesome thing that stands behind all the other awesome things. It's the awesome thing that is ongoing still today. You see, eventually the nations were going to hear about all that God did, all these powers that he, that he showed, but they were going to hear a lot more than that. They were going to hear that this God was the God who loved his people. And that's why he did those kind of things for them. That is the God who's revealed to Israel. It's the God then who's revealed to the whole world. A God who shows mercy. Undeserved mercy is what the Israelites... I mean, he could have just left them in Egypt, right? There was no obligation on God to show up there and get them out. He just did it. And this undeserved mercy is what he continues to show down through the ages, what he shows to the church today. It's why we're gathered together here in this church today. Because there's a God who shows undeserved mercy to us. You know, you're not here today because you've had any kind of special wisdom. You're not here today because you have any kind of exceptional virtue or some exceptional skill set. That's not how you get to be in the church. You get to be in the church by mercy. 
Every single one of us does. And that is an awesome thing. You know, this is not the way relationships usually work. Do you know that? I have probably jokingly told Olivia before that I sort of rescued her. We won't say from whom. It's not Donna, okay? Don't misunderstand. <laughs> but that's not the way good human relationships work, right? You don't sit around with your family and be like, well, I rescued you guys. Now let's eat. <laughs> that's the way things work in the church, though. Because that's the truth of what happened. We have been helpless and hopeless. And God just says, yes, I'll come and get you. And so the rest of our life is a praise to him. That's what we mean it to be. He calls out a people who are not a people, makes them a people, and says, now you can declare my praises to each other and to the whole world. And that's what we're doing here today. It's the awesome thing that God has done. Sometimes we're sitting around waiting for God to do something amazing, and it might be okay for us just to stop and say, he's already done something amazing. (laughs) And maybe we'd be a little bit more thrilled (laughs) with our lives if we stopped with gratitude to realize what has already happened for us. We're in the body of Christ today by a miraculous mercy. And we stand together. See, I know that about you, and you know that about me. That's why we're together at this table. That's why the ground is level at the foot of the cross. It's all mercy. (laughs) Nobody's standing up above everybody else. You know, the reason why there's a pulpit, this is just off the cuff here, I'm going to tell you. This isn't really a pulpit. This is a lecture, and we move back and forth. The reason why historically, though, the church had a pulpit that was raised up is because they wanted to call attention to the fact that the word of God was high. Not that any person's high. So they put a pulpit in place, and they open up a Bible up there so people would realize, okay, we stand under the Word. But let us never forget, we don't stand under any person outside of the person of God himself. And it's by mercy, his mercy, that we stand together in the church. You're welcome to the table today. (laughs) Where the body and blood of Jesus say to us, God is merciful to us. Second point that we learn here in this text and from the book of Exodus is that it's time to tear down idols. I imagine that the Hebrew people had picked up some pagan practices from their 400 years in Egypt. But when they came out, it was time to get rid of them. And not just some of them. Not just most of them. All of them. Look at verses 11 uh, through 17. I'll just read this and then comment on it. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars. What? Why not just reuse them? You know? Say a blessing over them. No. Tear them down. Break their pillars. Cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other god for the Lord whose name is jealous, is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your your sons whore after their gods. I'm really uncomfortable reading that word over and over, by the way. (laughs) That's not a word I use very often. There's a strong uh, strong word here in the text uh, for committing adultery, 
You shall not, or prostitution, whatever, you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. They come out, and here, you know, after, after they've sinned and God is telling them, basically, I'm going to still make this covenant. I'm renewing it now on the basis of a radical forgiveness. I'm renewing this covenant. You need to know that I'm going to continue to do awesome things for you. And he says, here's what you do. You get rid of every single hint of idolatry in the land. And you know what he says? Something that we don't really, it doesn't resonate with us very well anymore. I'm a jealous God. We don't usually talk of people being jealous in a positive light. Right? I mean, try that on your girlfriend. Baby, I'm a jealous guy. I'm so jealous, my name is Jealous. I'm not going to let you out of my sight. See, that, that's an insecurity. And we use it in a negative light, insecure, maybe an inappropriate desire for things. That's not what we're dealing with here in the Bible, okay? In fact, the word for jealous, I think you can translate it maybe zealous also. It has to do with God's passion. And in certain contexts, it's appropriate to have a passion. In certain relationships, it's appropriate to have a passion where you say this, this kind of passion can only be maintained with exclusive allegiance. Where you bind yourself to someone and say, we are exclusive with each other. And that's what God is saying. And that is a that is, is foundational, or it's built upon, let me say it like this, that is built upon God's passionate love. God doesn't just want his people to be unfriendly. He wants them to recognize the relationship they're in with him. When you get married, it's time to stop texting your old girlfriends. You don't keep carrying their pictures in your wallet. If you do, there's something wrong with your love, all right? That's not the appropriate relationship with your spouse. And here we are in a covenant with God. And he's saying, hey, cut out all the other stuff. And don't even make it a thought. Don't even preemptively get rid of it. Tear down whatever might be a temptation to you. Because I have taken you for myself. You will be mine and I will be yours. Brothers and sisters, as we come to this close of Exodus here, and we've journeyed through Exodus, it is time for us to consider whether we still have idols up. And whether there might be some things we need to tear down. Since we don't have a, a uh, very common practice of paganism in our society, at least not openly, um, we don't resonate initially with idolatry terminology. But for us, I think what we need to do is translate that into whatever might be occupying a place in our heart that rivals God. Are things that are unclean in us that we've said we will take into God's holy places. You know how we talked about God calls us, the tabernacle represents God's call to be separate and holy. Josh talked some about this last week, how we're called to be a distinct people, be different. Right? We're called to, to rid ourselves of, of things that defile us before God. And I just put it before you now with Jesus present with us to examine yourself and say, is there something here that I've been holding on to that's really dirty? It's really not from God. And I've decided to live with it. 
And could today be the day you decide to tear down that altar and say that the Lord will have no rivals in your heart. We are called to holiness. You ever heard of holiness preachers? The problem with holiness so often, I think historically, is that it gets attached to legalism. It's like, well, we don't have a TV in our house because we're holy. Or, or uh, we're, we're trying to be different. When I, when I was coming up, there was a big debate. I'm sorry for those of you who don't understand. Some of you will know this immediately. But there was a big debate in my tradition about whether or not women could wear pants. Right? And it's like they had to only wear skirts or dresses. And uh, one of the arguments in favor of that that was given is, well, well, that's how people know you're different. And uh, they would say things like, well, people come up to you and you ask you where you go to church. Because they see you. Uh, wearing your, your dresses around. They don't do that if you're wearing pants. And I always thought, and I don't mean this to be rude, okay, but I always thought about that. Well, yes, they do come and ask you, but it's not because they're drawn to your beauty and holiness. Right? It's because they think you're Pentecostal or they think you're strange in some way. And so they ask that question. Right? We're not called to be separate in some kind of legalistic way. It's like, oh, this certain clothing sets us apart. Or this certain food sets us apart. This certain way of, of not going to places sets us apart. We're called to be holy by reflecting God's character to his world. And then people see us. And they say, what's different about you? And they may say, where do you go to church? But they're wanting to know because they want something you have. Not because they're confused by the way you look. This is the holiness we're called to. Root out the idolatry and anything that gets close to idolatry. How about that? All right? Because we're not bowing down before altars in here. So let's just say what's getting close to idolatry, if the Lord puts it on your heart today, root it out today. And say today is the day that I will learn holiness again. I will learn what it means again to be the people who bear the name of God, who will not bear that name in vain. Remember how we talked about that? Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Don't let this great revelation where he has put his name on his people, don't let that be wasted. Don't let it be in vain. Finally, we're going to skip ahead here to chapter 40. I want to talk to you about uh, the tabernacle, the, the last part here after we get the tabernacle erected. And I'll tell you what the last point is, but first I want to read the text to you, okay? Verse 34 here at the very end. They, they, they get the tabernacle put up, and here's what happens. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It doesn't tell us what that glory is. Maybe it was just an incredible brightness that like blinded their eyes. That wouldn't surprise me if that's what it is, just shining through. But whatever it is, the glory of the Lord fills that place. And throughout all, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night. I think it may mean in the cloud by night, lighting up the cloud. In the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Here's where the story of Exodus ends. Please don't think this is just an interesting building project and just kind of, the whole story falls flat. Right? What the story says to us 
is that God has decided to live with his people and to go with them wherever they go. And this is huge. This is creation being restored. Remember, we talked a little bit about how the tabernacle, uh, literarily in, in the text, it connects back to creation in some ways. It seems to be some mirroring or something going on. Connections being made. Right? Creation is being restored. God initially wanted to walk with his people in the garden. God is saying, I'm going to come back. I'm dealing with your sin. I'm dealing with your rebellion. I'm coming back to be with you. And although access has not become unmediated yet, they're still going through the priesthood. There's still only one high priest who goes into the holy place. Still, God is saying, I'm going to be right here. And you can get close to me now. And this is leading us on forward to when Jesus comes in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We have a story that's not just a story, as the events of this week and many, many other times in history have shown. It's a story about God coming close to people and saying, I will be present with you. My last point is that we should seek the presence of God. This is what the story of Exodus points us to. We should recognize that he is present, and we should seek his presence. But let me, let me qualify this, okay? Because please know that even in the tabernacle, that kind of extreme glory was not always present. That was given to them. That brightness shined, but it didn't shine always. They couldn't have ever gone in if it did. <laughs> right? It shined for a while to remind them that God was there, but it didn't shine all the time. Those kind of powerful moments are not the daily sustenance. They are given to us to spur us onward, to remind us of what's real, and to remind us to keep seeking. We have to recognize that so that we don't become addicted to experiences. This is what some people do. They get a taste of God and a taste of his powerful presence, and that's all they want, and they're constantly disappointed. Why am I not getting more of that? Why am I not feeling more of God? And I want to say to you, I believe God will give us more experiences. He will give us more of himself. But we don't get addicted to that. Otherwise, we're just seeking to be loved by God, but we're not seeking to love God. And God withdraws himself for a, to a certain extent. Not, not far, far away. But he gives us enough space so that we can make choices to love him. I mean, imagine if God had just stood right beside Eve in the garden when the snake came out. She wouldn't have had any choice, really. <laughs> Would have been, I mean, she, she could have made a better choice like it was. But with God standing there, I mean, what's the snake going to do? Right? God removes himself some. And we get to make choices to seek and to follow him. But as we do so, we are seeking his real presence. And he does make himself known to us. The way I'd say it to you is like this. When God becomes manifest, Josh talked some last week about the, the different kinds of presences of God. God is present everywhere. The way I've heard it is that it, he's metaphysically everywhere, but he's not manifestly everywhere. Right? When God becomes manifest in any place, it is to remind us that he is present every place. And yes, he's present here today. Right? And he's especially present when his people gather together. He, he shows up many times through, through the gathered corporate uh, worship of his people. And so we seek God, knowing he is present, Wanting more of his manifest presence, which comes in degrees many times. Remember when Jacob 
Jacob was on the run, and he went to sleep, and he had this dream, and God spoke to him, and he saw angels going up and down to heaven. He wakes up and says, surely the Lord was in this place. And I didn't know it. This is an awesome place. You see, Jacob needed his understanding to be broadened. He thought it was the place he had run into. It was the God who's in every place he had run into. He just didn't know it yet. And we might even say that, that God wasn't more present there. Jacob was more present there. And maybe for us, what we need to do is become more present where we are to the God who's already here. Now, we need those refresher times, those powerful experiences, because they help us. They remind us of how real it is. But then we go forward seeking in various ways to welcome the presence of God. The tabernacle reminds us that God is present. It reminds us that our life should be a life of seeking his presence. I'll tell you something that's personal. I don't talk a lot about it, but uh, it's almost a decade. A couple of weeks from now, we'll make a decade ago when the Lord appeared to me in a powerful way. Um, it was a private, my own personal revival that I received. And it really changed my life and set my course of seeking, seeking the Lord. Uh, it was through my own brokenness and my need for help that he showed up, my, my longing for him to help me. And he, he let me know he's real and let me know that... Uh, I can have more of him. And since that time, my life has, has been changed very, very imperfectly. But it's like, um, and, and uh, not nearly what probably I could have done if I had been better myself. But, uh, but I've learned to seek the Lord in a different way through that. And I learned that his presence is real. And I learned that there's nothing on the, in the whole world that compares to it. And what I realized in that time is that was my only hope. <laughs> I realized my only hope to get better with my anxieties and things like that was if the Lord was going to be present to me. And... Uh, uh, afterwards, after that happened, I started noticing how our hymnody, the old hymns, are filled with songs. These songs started to have meaning to me that they never had before, about people who long for the presence of God. And as, as I come to a close here, I want to share some of those words with you, okay? Would you just listen to these words, and then I'm going to wrap it up. One of the ones that became important to me and I uh, started singing it to my girls over the years, is Be With Me, Lord. You know that song? Be with me, Lord, I cannot live without thee. I dare not try to take one step alone. I cannot bear the loads of life unaided. I need thy strength to lean myself upon. But the verse that, that has stood out to me more than that one is this. Be with me, Lord, no other gift or blessing just think about what the writer's saying. Be with me, Lord, no other gift or blessing thou couldst bestow could with this one compare. A constant sense of thy abiding presence. Wherever I am, to feel that you are there. And I started to realize that people writing songs like this, they actually knew what they were talking about. They were writing it from something that was real. These weren't just people who'd chosen some pretty lyrics. Listen to this one. Payton is one of my favorite songs we've sung recently. Payton led this a, a few weeks ago. Abide with me. I mean, abide with me. What does that mean? <laughs> be, with, be right here with me, right? But there's one verse in that song. I hope you noticed it when we sang it. I need your presence every passing hour. What but thy grace can foil the tempter's power? You see what he's saying? I'm helpless, right? Only your grace, only you being with me. Who, like thyself, my guide and stay, can be through cloud and sunshine? Oh, abide with me. 
sweet hour of prayer. Sweet hour of prayer. It calls me from a world of care and bids me at my father's throne, make all my wants and wishes known. One verse of that, that song really gets me. It's a song really about going into prayer and waiting for God to be present. Right? Listen to these words. Sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer, the joy I feel, the bliss I share of those who, whose ancients, anxious spirits burn with strong desires for thy return. This is how we go to prayer. Not kind of get through our list. People who desire God's face to return. As such, I hasten to the place where God my Savior shows his face. And gladly take my station there. And wait for you. Sweet hour of prayer. This is not a burden of prayer this lady's carrying, right? I think that's probably the way I heard it as a kid. Like, who in the world wants to make me sit there and pray for an hour? <laughs> this, is not what, this is not the call. If that's the, way you're prayer, if that's the way you're praying, I encourage you to cut it short. <laughs> really, really, that's not what Jesus wants for you. We go on talking about these songs, about fellowship with the Lord. And I want to tell you, these people know what they're talking about because this is what God has been doing. He's been saying, I want to be close to you people. Seek me. If the Lord has chosen to be with us, then what are we doing with our time? Do you notice that uh, at the beginning of the story, Moses when God comes to him, says, I'm going to go with you, and we're going to go to Egypt. Moses says, no, I won't go with you. And basically, that's what he tries to tell him. And then as we talked about last week, do you know how the story ends? Moses says, I won't go without you. <laughs> Don't leave us. Don't even send an angel in front of us and be just, you come and be with us. And I want to say to you that this is the journey that Scripture invites all of us into, a journey where we know who God is, we know He's a God who's present, and we say, we don't want to go without you. And would you soften your heart this morning to wherever you may have shut God out and invite Him to be present to you? Would you decide to seek Him while He may be found? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And what grace is this beyond our ability to comprehend that you say you want to be close to us? The God whose power none can contend, you have given us your name, you have given us your son, you have given us your spirit. And may our hearts be open to you now, dwelling with us. In Jesus' name, amen.